This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Charles. And uh, stay there, friends, in Luke 18 and 19. Since Christmas, we've been uh, walking with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. And you'll notice that we've arrived at Easter and we're not even in Jerusalem yet. Uh, And so you've got to hang around for next Easter when we will arrive in Jerusalem with Jesus in Luke's Gospel. Uh, After next week, we'll take a break from Luke until next Easter. But hang around. It's worth the end of the story. But here's the thing. If you can't hang around till next Easter, that's okay because the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is on view all the way through the Gospel accounts. It's not really the unexpected and surprising ending to this story. At least it's not that, um, un- that surprising for Jesus. As you'll see, as you already have seen in Luke 18, uh, Jesus knew what he was doing when he set his face towards Jerusalem. He was going there to die as the Saviour King of the world and rise again as God's judge and saviour that we so desperately need and that God so graciously provides. Uh, We were walking around the shops yesterday and uh, one of my kids said to me, looking around at the crowds, lots of people don't follow Jesus and yet everyone gets a holiday. What do they think it's about? That's a good question, isn't it? And I wonder, as you sit here this morning, or maybe you're at home and you've accidentally stumbled across us on YouTube, what do you think it's all about? Why did Jesus create such a dent in history that you and I would be here some 2,000 years later to remember and to celebrate and to declare that he is risen? How did his motley crew of bumbling disciples managed to turn the world upside down in a way that it would never be the same? The Bible's answer is that it isn't just because Jesus was a good man in a world where good men are hard to find. It wasn't simply that he was a spiritual guru in a world that's chaotic and anxious. It's not because those bumbling disciples needed a a good cause to get behind in a world that can feel aimless and empty. And it's not because he's such a good model of subversive revolution in a world that's full of oppressive systems that need overturning. It is because on that first Easter day, Jesus rose from the dead and physically walked out of the tomb. Having defeated sin and death once and for all, just as God promised, just as Jesus said he would. It is because he's the one and only Saviour King who gives hope-filled sight to a world lost in darkness, who comes and seeks and saves those who are wandering aimless on their way to death. They're the things that I want us to see from these passages this morning, that Jesus is the one and only Saviour. He gives hope-filled sight 
and he seeks and saves the lost. Look back with me at chapter 18, verse 31, where we see again that Jesus knows where he is going and what he is doing. He took the 12 aside, verse 31, and said, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him and spit on him and they will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And yet the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. Because they didn't yet have a category for a Messiah who would die on the cross and rise again. They, they had a category for the Messiah, God's long-awaited Saviour King. But their expectation that arrival in Jerusalem would mean taking on the political establishment, kicking out the Romans and re-establishing God's capital city here on earth. But it's Jesus' crucifixion and miraculous resurrection that gives them and the world a category for God's eternal King, whose capital city is not just in one place at one time for one group of people, but who rules all people in all places at all times from His throne in heaven. His disciples remain in the dark, even though they're following Jesus, what they expect salvation to look like, what it means for them, what it means for those who would come after them, it wouldn't be unveiled until Jesus has been risen from the dead and he pours out his spirit. All through history, as people keep crashing into failure and futility, as people keep coming face to face with death and disappointment, while we are always looking for life and hope and purpose and healing for the world, all through history, God continued to promise through his prophets in his word that one day, real hope would arrive. Because one day, he himself would show up to set the world right and to reconcile all things to him and to do away with sin and death once and for all. So Jesus' sham trial, Jesus' brutal execution, we don't see their disappointing and premature ends to the promising career of a charismatic personality. Jesus was handed over and executed according to God's perfect plan for sin and death to be defeated and for the hope of eternal life to be unleashed in the world. Uh, We love the principal of our kids' school and uh, when all the kids got sent home this time last year and a year of uncertainty started to unfold before us. Uh, He recorded a song for them and sent it as a video that ended up going viral, got picked up by all the news outlets, singing that every little thing was going to be all right. It was wonderful that he'd do that for these kids in the midst of a moment of uncertainty and fear. 
But on what basis do we get to say in a world of pandemics, in a world of sickness and a world under the shadow of death, on what basis can we possibly sing that every little thing is going to be all right? Because we'll create a vaccine? Amazing. But the vaccine doesn't bring much hope to three million families who have already lost a loved one to COVID. Every little thing is going to be all right because why? People have a huge capacity for resilience and bouncing back. Sometimes. Some of us don't have a very big capacity at all. Some of us know that we don't have resilience to bounce back and we'll continue to bumble day after day with chronic illness, with debilitating depression, with fear and anxiety. And so on what basis could we possibly sing that every little thing is going to be all right? hope that Jesus brings when he walked out of that tomb on that first Easter day is not a sentimental feeling or a catchy tune and it is not the fingers crossed and eyes closed kind of hope for the best kind of optimism. The kind of hope that the resurrection of Jesus means for this broken and divided and dark world is the kind of hope that is an anchor for your soul. It is certainty to build your life upon. It is purpose and forgiveness and joy and peace to shape your life around. What is impossible for us to achieve on our own, God does when he stepped into the world to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserve, to be raised to life, that we might have certain hope of sharing in his resurrected life. That's where Jesus is heading when he is heading towards Jerusalem purposefully and lovingly and graciously for you and for me. And he does it to give hope-filled sight to a world in darkness and death. It's pictured for us in the reception of sight by this blind beggar as Jesus heads towards Jericho. Pick it up with me at chapter 18, verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the side of the road, begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked, what is happening? They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him, told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith 
has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they praised God too. Once again, if you've been here since Christmas, we have another unexpected hero in the Gospel of Luke. A blind beggar. An unconventional, unconventional example. A blind man shows you what saving sight looks like. A blind man shows us that he sees with crystal clarity who Jesus is and what he needs to receive from Jesus. Son of David, he says, Jesus must be the long-promised king who will rule not just for one generation, who will rule forever and ever and ever. Son of David, come to set the world right to turn it all back the right way up again, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, sight all the way through the Bible isn't simply about the information coming in through your eyes. Sight in the world of the Bible is about the transformation of your heart and mind to see Jesus for who he truly is. And it's in seeing Jesus for who he truly is that you can then see everything else by the light that he provides. Jesus is the son of David who brings the mercy of God to a broken, dark and dying world. And once again, this unexpected hero shows us how we're meant to receive Jesus with nothing in his hands, with no resources in the world, by the side of the road, with empty hands, he asks for Jesus' mercy. Unable to contribute, nothing to bargain with, with the empty hands, he relies on Jesus' mercy and Jesus says to him, your faith has healed you. As a sign that he is now right with God, Jesus gives him his eyes and he follows Jesus, praising God. We then see that Jesus comes to seek and save the lost with a contrasting hero in this story, another unexpected hero. Pick it up with me at chapter 19 where we read about Zacchaeus. And again, when Jesus is in Jericho and was passing through, There was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Which is a bad way to start in a story about Jesus because typically these are the kinds of people, the wealthy, who are going to find Jesus difficult. Because unlike blind Bartimaeus, the wealthy come to Jesus, they've got plenty in their hands. They've got plenty in their pockets. They've got lots of resources and lots of things to bargain with in the world. And an expectation that what they need in the world, they can buy in the world. So here he is, Zacchaeus, the rich tax collector who wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd, a lovely little detail. He ran ahead, he climbed the sycamore fig tree to see Jesus since he was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, 
come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was lost. He had loads of money. He had social capital in the community. He had a home that he could welcome his friends into. Unlike blind Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus has loads of resources and is totally lost without God and without hope in the world. Do you realise that? That you can have all the resources in the world and be totally lost without Jesus. Well, Zacchaeus shows us how you're meant to respond when Jesus comes looking for you. He welcomes him gladly. And then he demonstrates the difference that Jesus makes by transforming his life and saying, of all the people that I've cheated, I'm going to give back the money. I'm not just going to pay Jesus lip service, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, turn my life around. It's called repentance. And that's the example that he gives for you and for me today. To welcome Jesus gladly, the mercy, the hope, the forgiveness that we need. And to live a life of repentance that doesn't put our own sin and selfishness at the centre anymore, but instead puts Jesus and his forgiveness and his mercy and his kingship at the centre to hear Jesus' call and to build your life upon him, to build your life around him. There's lots of talk about the vaccine, which is very, very good. And because Professor Caterson's here this morning, I'll say everyone needs to have it. And if you've got questions about it, you can talk to Ian at the end. And we're so thankful all the scientists who have made it possible. But just so I'm in the good books for Professor Caterson this morning, I want to say it's not good enough just to be thankful. It's not good enough just to understand why the vaccine's needed. It's not good enough to, to know that there is a need and that it's available. It's not good enough just to know how the science works. It's not good enough just to admire the researchers and the process that, that went into creating the vaccine. You can, you can have all that and the vaccine is of no use to you whatsoever until you actually trust it and receive it. And it's exactly the same with Jesus. 
He came not to be the Saviour King who is admired and observed from a distance. He came not to be the Saviour King who's understood and thought about and theorised over. He came to be the Saviour King who's trusted and received personally by individuals like you and me. The challenge I want to give to you this morning is to not just acknowledge that Jesus exists or even admire him from a distance, but to welcome him gladly like Zacchaeus and throw yourself on his mercy like the blind man to personally trust and to follow him for that eternal life, for that certain hope that Jesus died and rose to give us. I'm going to give you a moment to consider that this morning and then I'm going to give you a moment to, in a sense, put it into practice as we share together in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a a little remembrance meal. It's a very physical and visible reminder that Jesus isn't to be admired from a distance, but is to be received personally by each and every one of us. It's a reminder that it's Jesus' death and resurrection that brings us forgiveness, that we need to feed on him, we need to trust him with everything that we've got and with everything that we are. The Lord's Supper reminds us to look back to Jesus' death, to look forward to his return and it gives us an opportunity to look around at the wonderful family that he has united us to forever. So I'm going to invite you to spend a moment reflecting on your own relationship with Jesus and where you stand and then we're going to share together in the Lord's Supper.